Good morning, good evening, good whenever you're listening to this. This is going to be episode two of Shazara and Sunflower. Um, I'm going to start this off by saying I miss you so fucking much. Literally, it bothers me every single time I think about it. Um, not like a bad way. Not like a, ugh, I miss him. Like a, oh, I wish he was here. You know what I mean? It's really weird. Um, you know, like... Again, not weird and bad way. Jesus Christ, this is all coming out wrong. Um, <laughs> it's weird as in, I've never had someone to miss this much. And so, like, being able to miss you this much is kind of just, like, really nice. You know, again, in a weird-ass fucking way. Like, I like having someone to miss. It's just that's my person, that's baby, you know what I mean? It's kind of that vibe. Um, so we're gonna start this off, um, I know I already started reading you Bones by Jan Burke, however, we're gonna start reading it again, because, um, let's see, it's been probably a good two months since I read it to you, and you were asleep for some of it, I feel like, so we're going to, uh, we're gonna read it to you. Um, so it starts with two little intros. One of them is a reading from Parzival, The Quest of the Grail Knight, um, which is relevant to the book. And one of them is actually like an intro to the characters, or a character specifically. Um, So starting with the Parzival one. The gate was open and the drawbridge down. He galloped across, but when he got to the end of the drawbridge, someone yanked the cable so abruptly that Parzival was nearly thrown, horse and all, into the moat. Parzival turned back to see who had done this to him. There, standing in the open gateway, was the page who had pulled the cable, shaking his fist at Parzival. "'May God damn the light that falls upon your path,' the boy cried. "'You fool! You wretched fool! Why didn't you ask the question?' "'What do you mean?' Parzival shouted back. "'What question?' He paid cash for the book, as he had all the other books on the subject. He spoke to no one, and did nothing that would make him memorable to a clerk or a customer." There were many customers in the store when he made the purchase. He always chose times he knew the bookstores would be busy. Even if the store had been empty, he would have had little to worry over. When he chose to hide his powers, he was a nondescript man in a world full of people who could seldom describe more than what they saw in the mirror each morning. Oh, perhaps they could describe close friends, their own children, their spouses, people they worked with every day. At a stretch, their neighbors. But not quite strangers in bookstores. Not a stranger who had never been there before, and would never come in again. He felt mild excitement buying these books, knew this was how some men felt when buying pornography. Seeing it sitting in the bag on the car seat on the way home, he knew the book's subject matter would arouse him. Not as much as the real thing. Nothing ever excited him as much as the real thing. This one was about Dahmer. We don't share the same appetites, he thought to himself, and was hard put to control a little fit of hilarity at the joke he had made. When he finished reading and rereading the book, he would place it with all the other books about his brethren. Books about Bianchi and Speck and Bundy, about earlier ones, Moores and Lucas and Pomeroy, and others. Books about killers in their minds, about killers and their victims, about killers and those who haunted them. At first, he had read the books because he wanted to understand the drive, the need that he feared would consume him. But now, it was merely entertainment of a sort. By now, Years after he had begun his little library, he knew he understood all there was to understand. He knew that only a man of his genius could cope with the demands of his desire. He did not lack daring or creativity. 
Every new aspect, every heightening of the experience, merely confirmed what he already knew. He was unique in history. Thinking of this, he was a little sad that he wouldn't be caught, because he knew he was going to miss that one additional thrill, the only one that eluded him, the acknowledgement. Notoriety beckoned. He dreamed of it, fantasized about it almost as much as the killings. Why did he kill? Everyone would want to know. Why did he kill? Everyone would ask. And he would speak, quietly and with authority, and all would hear the answer. Four years later, Monday afternoon, May 15th. The sensation of being watched had almost been constant on this journey, and now I was feeling it again. I tried to ignore it, to concentrate on the paperback I was reading, but my efforts were useless. I lifted my eyes from the page and looked toward the prisoner, three rows up, expecting to see him staring at me again. He was asleep. How could he manage it over the loud drone of the plane's propellers? I'll never know. How Nick Parrish could sleep at all. I suppose that's one of the advantages of being utterly without a conscience. So if Nick Parrish wasn't the one eyeing me, who was? I glanced around the cabin. Most of the men, even those who were not sociopaths, were sleeping. Two of Parrish's guards were awake, but not looking at me. The other two napped. I turned to look behind me. Ben Sheridan, one of the forensic anthropologists, was looking out the window. David Niles, the other, sat across the aisle reading. There, sitting next to him, was the stare. He wasn't staring so much as studying, I decided. No hostility there. Actually, of the all-male group with me on the small plane, he was the only one who didn't object to my presence. While most of the others snubbed me, he had taken an immediate liking to me, and the feeling was mutual. He was handsome, intelligent, and athletic. But then again, nothing excited him more than discovering a piece of decaying flesh. He was a cadaver dog. Bingle, named for his haggit... Haggit... Yup, good one. Binkle, named for his habit of crooning whenever he heard his handler sing, was a black and tan, three-year-old, mostly German shepherd dog, trained to find human remains. And that was what this exception... Expedition. Jesus fucking Christ, I can't read. (laughs) And that was what this expedition into the mountains was all about. Finding human remains. A very specific set of them. I looked into Bingle's dark brown eyes, but my thoughts had already turned into a blue-eyed girl named Jillian Sayer. Jillian, who had spent the last four years waiting for someone to find whatever remained of her mother's. Four years ago, warm warm summer day, the day after her mother failed to come home, Jillian was waiting outside the building which houses the Express. I was with a group of co-workers on our way to lunch. I saw her right away. She was tall and thin, and her hair was cropped short and dyed the color of an eggplant. Her face was pale. She was wearing dark brown lipstick and lots of eyeshadow, which only accentuated the nearly colorless blue of her eyes. Her lashes and brows were thick and dyed black, and her left brow was pierced by a small silver hoop. Seven or eight piercings climbed the curve of each ear. Her pale, slender fingers bore silver rings of varying widths and designs. Her fingernails were short but painted black. Her clothes were rumpled, her shoes clunky. Are any of you reporters, she called to us. Never slow to grasp this sort of opportunity. My friend Stor Anger pointed at me and said, Only this later lady here. The rest of us finished an interview with her, so she's free to talk to you. The others laughed, and the words call for an appointment were on my lips, but something about her made me hesitate. Stuart's joke had not gone over her head. I could see that she was already expecting me to disappoint her, and she looked as if she was accustomed to being disappointed. Go on, I said to the others. I'll catch up to you. I put up with another round of chiding and some half-hearted protests, but before long I was left standing alone with her. I'm Irene Kelly, I said. What can I do for you? They won't look for my mother, she said. Who won't? 
The police. They think she ran away. She didn't. How long has she been gone? Since four o'clock yesterday. Well, that's the last time I saw her. She looked away, then added. She went to a store. They saw her there. I figured I was talking to a kid who was doomed to learn that her mom was throwing in the towel on family life, but as I let her talk, I began to feel less certain of that. Jillian's, Julia Sater was... Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Julia Sayer was 40 years old on the night she failed to come home. Jillian's father, Giles Sayer, had called his wife a little before four that afternoon to say he had obtained a pair of coveted symphony tickets. The debut of the symphony's new director was to take the place that evening. Hurriedly leaving their younger child, nine-year-old Jason, in Jillian's care, Julia left their house in her Mercedes-Benz to go shopping at a mall not five miles away from her affluent neighborhood to buy a slip. She had not been seen since. When he came home that evening and discovered that his wife hadn't returned, Giles was more anxious about the possibility of being late to the concert than his wife's whereabouts. As time went on, however, he became worried and drove over to the shopping center. He drove through the eyes of the parking lot near her favorite store, Nordstrom, but didn't see her blue sedan. He went into the store, and after questioning some of the employees in the lingerie department, learned that she had indeed been there, but at four o'clock or so, several hours earlier. When Giles Sayer reported his wife missing, the police gave it all the attention they usually give an adult disappearance of five hours duration. Virtually none. They looked, too, for Julia Sayer's car in the shopping center parking lot. Giles had, could have told them it wouldn't be there. He had already made another trip to look for it. Sometimes, Jillian, I began, but she cut me off. Don't try to give me some bullshit about how she might be some kind of runaway, doing the nasty with somebody other than my dad, she said. My folks are super close, happily married and all that. I mean, it would make you want to gack to see them together. Yes, but ask anybody. Ask our neighbors, they'll tell you. Julia Sire only has trouble with one person in her life. You. She looked surprised by my guest, but then shrugged. She folded her arms, leaned back against the building, and said yes. Why? She shrugged again. You don't look like you were some little sweet cakes that never stepped out of line. Didn't you ever fight with your mom when you were a teenager? I shook my head. No, my mother died when I was 12, before I was a teenager. I used to envy the ones I caught myself. Well, that's not important. She was silent. If she had lived, I said, we probably would have fought. I got into all kinds of mischief even before I was a teenager. She began studying one of her fingernails. I was wondering how my memories of my mother might have differed had she lived on for another five years when Jillian asked, Do you remember the last thing you said to her? Yes. She waited for me to say more. When I didn't, she looked away, her brows drawn together. She said, The last thing I said to my mother was, I wish you were dead. Jillian, she wanted me to watch Jason. She wanted me to cancel all my plans and do what she wanted so she could go to the stupid concert, and I was upset. My boyfriend was upset when I said I couldn't see him, so I yelled at her, and that's what I said to her. She may be fine, I said. Some people just feel overwhelmed. They need to take off. Not my mom. I'm just saying, she hasn't been gone for 24 hours yet. Don't assume that she's... I stopped myself just in time. Don't assume that she's been har harmed. Then I need you to help me find her, she said. No one else will take me seriously. They're like your friends. She nodded in the direction of Stuart and the others. Think I'm just a kid. No need to listen to a kid. I pulled out my notebook and said, You understand I don't get to decide get to decide if the story runs in the paper, right? She smiled. Once I argued my editor into letting me pursue the story, I drove to the Sayers home, a large two story on a quiet cul de sac. 
Giles answered the door after scooping up a yapping Pekingese. Handed the squirming dog off to Jillian, who took it upstairs. Jason, he told me, had been taken to stay with his grandmother. When I first approached Giles Sayer, I thought he might resent Jillian's recruitment of a reporter to help with what could turn out to only be an embarrassing family matter. But Giles heaped praise on his daughter, saying he should have thought of trying to enlist the Express himself. What am I going to do if anything has happened to Julia? he asked anxiously. Unlike Jillian, he was tall and thin and had pale blue eyes, but his hair was a much more natural color, a deep auburn. Auburn. He had not slept. His eyes were reddened from tears, which, by this point, could come easily, and which he didn't try to hide. He hurried to hand me several, lar- several recent photographs of his wife. Her hair was dark brown, her large eyes a deep blue. An attractive, self-possessed woman, she appeared to be perfectly groomed, even in the most casual photographs. Jillian did not resemble her so much as her father, but Jason, I saw from a group photo, took a few features from each. Her dark hair and a cra- aristocratic facial feature and his pale blue eyes. Which of these is the most recent, I asked. Giles selected a photograph taken at a junior league event. Can I keep it? I can try to get it back for you, but I can't make any promises. No, that's all right. I have the negative. This level of cooperation continued throughout the day. He met my involvement with a sense of relief, anxious to do whatever he could to help me with the story. The benefit was mutual. I gave him a chance to take action, directed some of the energy that up until now had gone to pacing and feeling helpless. His help made my job much easier. It occurred to me that his anxiousness to spread the word was not something you'd likely find in a man who fears he had been cuckolded. So I talked to neighbors and friends of Julia Sayer. I talked to other members of her family. The more I heard about her, the more I was inclined to agree with her daughter. Julia Sayer wasn't likely to disappear of her own volition. Julia seemed fairly content with her life, content with just about everything except her relationship with her daughter. The universal opinion on that matter was that Jillian's hellion phase was soon was bound to come to an end soon. According to friends, no one was more sure of that than Julia. If she was conducting an extramarital affair, Miss Sayer had been extremely discreet about it. I still hadn't ruled out the possibility that she had left Giles Sayer for someone else, but it was no longer my pet theory. I asked Jillian to tell me again what her mother had been wearing. A black silk skirt and jacket, she said, a white silk blouse, a pair of black leather pumps, and a small black leather purse. Her only jewelry had been a simple gold chain necklace, a pair of diamond earrings, and her wedding ring. Not her wedding ring, really, Giles said. On our 15th anniversary, we had new rings made. He held his up. Hers is gold, like this one, and it has three rubies in it. He drove me to the mall where she had last been seen, and with his help, I got the Nordstrom manager to look up the time of the transaction. Julia had used a MasterCard purchase a MasterCard to purchase a black slip at 4.18 p.m. the previous afternoon. We thanked the manager and left. Giles called the MasterCard customer service number on his cell phone as we walked from store to store in the mall, showing Julia's photo to clerk after clerk, none of whom had seen this lady yesterday. Eventually, he got his answer from MasterCard customer service rep um, and asked her to repeat the information to me. She confirmed that Julia Sayer hadn't used the credit card since making the Nordstrom purchase. I called an overworked missing persons detective in the LLPD, LPPD, thank goodness, and told him I was writing a story about Julia Sayers' disappearance. He wouldn't comment for the story, but off the record, told me he'd try to get some action for the case. When Julia Sayers' Mercedes-Benz was spotted on the upper floor of a Las Piernas airport parking garage, the two patrolmen who found it thought the woman might have decided to escape her marriage after all. But then the detectives called to the scene made a discovery, a discovery that had my director my editor, 
overjoyed that we had beaten the competition to the story, praising my instincts while it tied my stomach into knots. Julia Sayre's left thumb was in the glove compartment. Chapter 2 Four weeks ago, when the Caroline story first broke, I had expected another one of Jillian's try-and-find-out calls. Over the years following Julia's disappearance, I had heard from Jillian whenever certain events were reported in the Express. If a Jane Doe was found, Jillian calmly asked me to try and find out if the unidentified body might be her mother's, never failing to recite the details of her mother's height and coloring and clothing and jewelry. Was the victim a blue-eyed brunette? Was the victim wearing a gold ring with three rubies? If a man was arrested for killing a woman, she wanted me to interview him, to try and find out if he had killed her mother, too. If a suspected serial killer was arrested in another state, she wanted me to try and find out if he had ever been to Las Piernas. I quit the paper once and went to work for a public relations firm. She tracked me down and called me there. O'Connor, my old mentor at the Express, was a soft touch for a missing persons case and told her where to find me. When I told her she should ask O'Connor to follow up on the story, she quoted him as saying it would be good good for me to remember what it felt like to have a real job. I could have refused her, of course, but even at an observer's distance, I had allowed myself to become too close to the Sayers' misery over those years. I seldom saw Giles and was never away from his office. And never away from his office. Oh my god, sorry. I seldom saw Giles and never away from his office. There we go, Jesus. Apparently he worked long hours to distract himself from his grief. His mother worked in, moved in with the family to help care for the children. Two months after Julia disappeared, Giles told me that he didn't know whether or not to hold a memorial service for her. I don't even know what's involved in having her declared dead, he said. My mother says I should wait, that people would think I would be happy to be rid of her. Do you think anyone would think that? I told him that he should do what he needed to do for his family, and to hell with everyone else. It was a great advice he seemed unlikely unlikely to take. The opinions of others seemed to matter a great deal to him. Jason got in trouble at school and at home and on a regular basis. His grandmother confided in me that his grades had dropped, he had quit playing sports, and had become a loner, having little to do with his old friends. Excuse me. Only Jillian seemed to continue on with her life. She gave her grandmother... Excuse me. Sorry. (laughs) She gave her grandmother as much grief as she had given Julia. She dropped out of high school, moved out, and bought a small apartment on her own, and supported herself by working at a boutique on Ellen Street, artsy-fartsy street, my friend's store anger calls it and spent four years quietly and persistently reminding the police and the press that someone ought to be looking for her missing mother, her determined stoicism shaming us into doing what little we could. On the day that Caroline... Oh my god, I really can't read, Jesus. On the day the Caroline case first made headlines, Jillian waited for me outside of the Wrigley building, the home of the Express. She seemed to me then as she had seemed from the first day I met her. No matter how likely it was that she would be met with disappointment... Jillian simply refused to acknowledge defeat. This affected me more than tears or hysterics. Nothing in her manner had changed. She was often brusque. I don't know how to fucking say that word. Uh, I'm gonna just say brusque. That's fine. Um, She was never weak. Her clothing, hair, and makeup styles might be a little extreme, but her feelings, whatever they were, were not on display. So I made calls. I followed up. There was never any progress, until Caroline disappeared. By then, I wasn't allowed to cover crime stories, a result of my marriage to to Frank Harriman, a homicide detective. But my marriage is more than worth the hassles it causes me at the Express and Frank at the LPPD. 
As it happened, Frank was part of the team that investigated the Lane case. I learned details about it that I couldn't tell the paper's crime reporter, let alone Jillian, but before long, almost all of those details became public knowledge. Caroline was 43, dark-haired, blue-eyed, divorced mother of two teenage daughters. She had gone to the grocery store at 8 o'clock one evening, and when she had not returned by 11, her daughters became concerned. Too young to drive, they called a neighbor. By midnight, after a search of local store parking lots, the neighbor called Kara's ex-husband. After another search of the stores, the ex-husband called the police. The search for Caroline began in earnest early the next morning. Several factors caused the police to search for her more quickly than had Julia Sayer. Kara was a diabetic who needed daily insulin injections, and she had not taken her medication with her. She had never left her daughters alone at night, and during the morning briefing, Detective Frank Harriman noticed that in height, age, build, and hair color, Kara resembled Julia Sayer, a woman whose daughter pestered his reporter wife every now and then. He suggested to his partner, Pete Baird, that they take a look at the Lots Piernas Airport parking lot. Caroline's aging Volkswagen van was parked in exactly the same place where Julius Sayer's Mercedes had been left four years earlier. Not long after they called in their discovery, the van was carefully searched, and Caroline's left ring finger was found in the glove compartment. At this point, the department called David Niles, a forensic anthropologist who owned two dogs trained for both search and rescue and cadaver work, and asked them to bring him bring them down to the airport. The results were remarkable. So remarkable that when Frank and Pete told me about it that evening, I was fairly sure they were exaggerating. One of his dogs, Bingle, is so smart, Pete said. He can find anything. I mean, he makes these mutts of yours look retarded, Irene. Wait just a minute, I said, looking over at Deke, mostly Black Lab, and Dunk, mostly Shepherd, who were sleeping nearby. Our dogs are smart, Frank said, trying to head off an argument. But Bingle is, well, you'd have to see him to believe it. And he's highly trained, and don't forget Bull, Pete said. His bloodhound, he works with two dogs. If one acts like he's found something, he gets the other to confirm it. Bingo has even located bodies underwater, Frank said. How is that possible? I asked. You put him in a little scuba outfit? Very funny, Pete said. The dog can do it, Frank said. It's not as miraculous as it sounds. The bacteria in a decomposing body causes it to give off gases. The scent rises through the water, and the dogs can smell it when it reaches the surface. They can dig Bingo out in a boat and cross the surface of a lake, and he'll indicate when he smells a body below. All right, I said, that makes sense, but let us tell you what happened, Pete said. I'm pausing for a second, I need water. (laughs) Also, I'm very sorry, I'm messing up a lot. I'm very anxious reading out loud, always have been. Sick, the water really helps. Okay. The gist of the tale was that Bingo led a group of men at a fast clip over a weaving trail out of the parking structure and across the grounds of the airport. Then he headed towards an airplane hangar. He went bananas, Pete said, moving his hands in a rapid dog-like, dog-paddle fashion. He was furiously pawing at one of the back paws, Frank explained. It took the police some time to get a warrant and to locate the owner of the building, but they gained access. At first, nothing seemed amiss. The hangar was leased by Nicholas Parrish, a quiet man, the owner said. A man who paid his rent on time never caused any problems. Interplay mechanic. The police ran Parrish's name through their computers. He had no outstanding warrants. In fact, he had no criminal record at all. David Niles brought out Bull and let the bloodhound sniff the, an article of Caroline's clothing. Bull, who needed this pre-scenting in order to track, traced a path almost identical to the one Bingle had followed. Frank suggested getting a crime scene unit to check out the hangar with luminol, a chemical capable of detecting minute traces of blood, 
but the skeptics in the group were starting to grumble, especially Reed Collins and Vince Adams, the detectives in charge of the Lane case. Collins is starting to make remarks about wasting precious time and his partner's making noise about a wild goose chase, when all of a sudden, Bingo lifts his head and sings. Pete crooned a single high note that brought both of our dogs to their feet, heads cocked. David gives another command, and the dog takes off again. This time, the dog headed across the tarmac to a field beyond the nearest runway. When he stopped, he pranced and bounced about, <clears throat> furiously pawing at the earth, crooning again, actions which Pete, getting into his story, performed for us. Quite a workout. David moved ahead to the place where Bingle had alerted and called back, I think he's found her. The others soon caught up, and they saw the shallow grave. The freshly turned earth, a woman's shoe protruding from something shiny and green, plastic sheeting. Frank got on the radio, telling the officers in the hangar that they should secure the area, call out a crime scene unit, and put out an APB for Nicholas Parrish. The whole time he's on the radio, I'm moving a little closer, and I see what the dog was digging at, at what he's uncovered. It's her hand. You know, the left one. The one that's missing the finger. Yes? Is Ryan down there? No. I'm kind of in the middle of something right now. Can you do it really quick? Fine. Thank you. Fuck yeah, I did not want to walk the dog. <laughs> um, I'm getting another drink of water. My throat actually do be hurting quite a bit for no reason. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna, gonna lubricate. <laughs> Um, I looked at Frank. Jillian Sarah, well, you can't tell her yet, he said firmly. Nobody. Not any of this. Not yet. But by the next morning, the Caroline case had made the front page, and Jillian was standing outside the newspaper, looking a little more anxious than usual. When I was within a few feet of her, he held up a creased copy of the Express and pointed to Parrish's photo. He's the one who took my mother. It looks as if the cases have a lot in common, I agreed. No, I mean, I know he's the one. He used to live on our street a long time ago. What? How long ago, before my mother disappeared? Have you told the police? She shook her head. I wasn't surprised. Whatever faith she might have had in the police at one point had been damaged when the LPPD delayed searching for her mother and was utterly destroyed when they failed to find her. Julian and I shared a dislike of Bob Thompson, the Las Piernas Police Department homicide detective who had handled her mother's case. Once or twice, she had talked to other homicide detectives when a Jane Doe was found, but usually she relied on me to make contact with the police on her behalf. I thought maybe you could tell your husband, she said now. Yeah, sure, I said, still reeling. Nicholas Parrish lived there alone? No, I think his sister in the house. You ever see anything strange going on there? No, not really. They were quiet. She moved away. Don't remember exactly when. And I don't know where she lives now. But she wasn't friendly. Was he? She shrugged. He kind of kept to himself. I guess he was nice to everybody. You know, smiled and waved. But he used to stare at my mom. Now, as I held fast to the armrest of my seat while the plane jolted in the choppy air above the north southern sierra nevadas i watched the serial killer awaken not far from me it was not difficult for me to imagine nicholas parrish stalking his prey staring at julia sarah as she left the house to run errands or as she worked in her garden or came home from the store staring at her while she imagined herself safe from harm staring at her much in the same way she was he was staring at me now monday afternoon may 15th southern sierra nevada mountains after a bouncy landing on a rough patch of ground that served as an airstrip, 
there was a wait before we were allowed to disembark. Bob Thompson addressed one of the guards as Earl and muttered some order to him. Earl was the first to exit. He returned shortly, giving the all clear. He returned shortly and, giving an all clear, worked with the other three guards to remove Parrish from the plane. He texted me. Oh, hi, baby. Miss you. Um. Oh my goodness. Wait, wait, wait. Oh. Thompson was next, followed by the young, quiet man who seemed to be his assistant, though not his partner. Thompson and Phil Newley, Parrish's attorney, were the only members of the group that I had met before that day. A few years back, I had covered some crime stories and seen Newley around the courthouse. Thompson and I had known each other for close to ten years. The contempt was strong and mutual. I figured that made me the show horse in the race to capture the hostility between the other passengers. Parrish was first by a length, followed by Newley. As a member of the press, I was a distant third. Newley and Bill Flash Burden, an LPPD crime scene photographer, stepped off after the guards. Then the pilot came back into the cabin and stood in the aisle. Rest if you wait until they get Parrish settled, he said, then left the plane. Minutes passed. Do you know who's meeting us from the Forest Service? I heard David Niles ask. JC, said Bed Sheridan, the other anthropologist. Andy's coming up with him. Andy who? I asked. Sheridan eyed me coldly, then turned back to the window, frowning. After a moment's silence, David Niles said, Andy Stewart, a botanist who works with us sometimes. Thank you, Dr. Niles. Call me David. Sheridan sighed loudly. This only seemed to amuse David, but he didn't say more to me. I had known that we would be meeting people at the airstrip, men who were being flown in from another team, but Thompson had only said they were part of Sheridan's team. Okay, folks, Earl called. I stood, but gestured to David to let Bingle, fidgety since the landing, lead the way. Thanks, he said, and followed the dog. That left me with Ben Sheridan, who was still frowning as he gazed out the window. Listen, I began, I don't want to, I'm not leaving you here to snoop around the plane. Go on outside. I felt a flare of temper, checked it, and left the plane without saying another word to him. I stretched to the bottom of the steps, taking in the view before me. We were in a long meadow, near the center of a narrow valley, of a narrow valley that was already shadowed and cooling. The scent of pine from nearby woods mixed with the fragrance of late spring blossoms in the meadow of grass and earth. When I saw the slender moan strip where we had landed, I felt a new respect for the pilot. <gasps> Ooh, my package is here, huh? You already got this package when you're listening to this, and you still don't know what it is. Um, a base camp would be set up here. Bingle, once he had relieved himself, began cavorting wildly through the meadow, not so much as running as bouncing through it, stopping now and then to try and lure his handler into playing with him. But David, Sheridan, and everyone who wasn't involved in guarding Parrish were busy unloading gear from the plane. I gathered my own, then moved to help the others. I had only taken a few steps when a voice behind me asked are you the reporter i turned to see a lean golden young man smiling at me i guessed him to be in his mid-twenties his hair was short and spiky he was tanned and had the kind of calf muscles a person can only get by moving his feet over long distances on a bike or running or hiking he wore a closely trimmed beard and a single earring in his right hair yes i said setting down my backpack and extending a hand irene kelly andy stewart he said with a firm handshake i'm the botanist for the team J.C. and I got here at noon. We're all set up. Can I give you a hand with anything? I can manage this, but it looks like Dr. Sheridan still has some gear in there. He grabbed another canvas bag and continued to chat with me, telling me that a Forest Service helicopter had brought him in earlier. Forgive me for asking, but why is a botanist needed for this search? Well, whenever anybody like Mr. Parrish comes along and digs a hole, 
drops will ultimately um, amount to a big chunk of fertilizer in it and then covers it up again, nature doesn't let that pass unnoted. The plants he dug up, the new ones that begin to grow, surrounding soil, he's created a disturbance in the existing system. With enough practice, a botanist can learn to see the signs of that disturbance. So you're paid to look for changes in plant life? His face broke into a grin. Paid? No, none of us are paid. Ben, David, and I do this forensic work voluntarily. I'm a grad student in biology. Ben and David teach in the anthropology department. David also pays for all of Mingle's training and equipment. Even JC doesn't get any special pay for coming along, even though he's on the Forest Service payroll while he's here. He paused. If you don't mind me asking the question you asked me, what's a reporter doing here? Good question. There are any number of folk, any number of folks here and at home who tell you I have no business being here. I paused, trying to shut out the memory of the fight Frank and I had had before we left. I don't want you up there with him, no matter how many guards he has on him. I don't want to be up there with him either, but I can't get out of this one, Frank. Refuse the assignment. God damn it, Irene, those amputations were anti-mortem. You know what that means? Stop it, I said. It means, he went on ruthlessly, that all those women were alive when he began mutilating them, Irene. Alive. But you're here anyway, Andy was saying. Yes, I know Julia Sayers' family, I began. Sayers the victim he claims he'll lead us to? Yes. I'm here to put an end to the last remnants of their hope, I thought. That small, impossible burden of hope that would ride in the back of their minds like a shoe and like a stone in a shoe. Years as a reporter taught me to find the f- that families would hold fiercely to whatever little hope they could find, whatever possibility that they could imagine. If their son was in a plane that crashed, they wondered if perhaps he had missed the flight, pictured him giving his ticket to a friend. The Sayers would have such hopes, I knew, although Jillian would never betray their existence to me. Parrish's announcement would have put nearly an end to all of that fantasy. What a blow it must have been to Jillian. Still, the Sayers would wonder if Parrish was bluffing or mistaken about the identity of his victim. And so now there was only this, this final identification. We would unbury Julia Sayers' remains and leave the last of her family's hope in their place. Good of you to go to this much trouble for them, Andy said, bringing me out of my reverie. No, it's not, I said. I'm here because my boss insisted on it, and it wasn't exactly pleased with the assignment. I got caught in the police politics. The Las Piernas police got a black eye recently when they tried to hide mistakes that made an internal affairs investigation. He said, nodding. But one of the reporters on the Express learned about it and made them look twice as bad. Yes. So to prove to the public that they're doing a great job and everything's above board, the brass decided to let a local reporter get in on a success story, the resolution of an old case that has helped the that has been given big play in the paper. The Express was already leaning on them to let me come along. I never dreamed they'd said yes, or I would have tried to head off those plans before they got this far. I think this would be a reporter's dream. I'm not too fond of the mountains. Not fond of the mountains, he said aghast. This, clearly, he considered to be sacrilege. I swallowed hard. I used to love them, but I had a bad experience in the mountains once. Backpacking? No, in a cabin. My mouth was dry. I could feel my tongue slowing, clacking over the simple little word. Cabin. Andy seemed not to notice. But you've been backpacking before, he said, puzzled. Yep. Yep. The gear give me away? Yep. Not Nova's style. Not like that lawyer's bullshit outfit. Most of yours is broken in, like your boots. The attorney's boots are brand new, and I'll bet you he's going to have blisters in no time. You've got a few new items, but they aren't just for show. It's been a long time since I used my gear. I didn't want to think about why. Then separate this from whatever happened in that cabin, he said with the easy logic of youth. Before I could answer, a deep voice called from the other side of the meadow. Your botanist is upsetting Miss Kelly. Perish. 
I felt my face color under the sudden attention that came from almost everyone else, from all but his guards, one of them who's, one of whom was telling him to shut up. Am I? Andy asked me. No, no, you aren't. You make me feel much more comfortable about being here. He grinned again. To some extent, I had told him the truth. At least he was speaking to me, being friendlier than the others. Maybe he was right about backpacking. Maybe my fears wouldn't be triggered in the same way they might be if I were driving up to the mountains and staying in a cabin. I used to know a little about wildflowers, I said, trying to keep my thoughts away from cabins and glove compartments and Nicholas Parish. Maybe you can help me remember the names of some of the ones in this meadow? Monday afternoon, May 15th. Same location. We ended up postponing our botany lesson. There was simply too much to be done but to set up camp before nightfall. I pitched my tent and set my backpack in it, then looked to see if anyone else might need help. I saw Earl, one gar- guard whose name I had heard spoken, taking some medication. He was a man who appeared to be in his late 40s. I thought his partner might be a little older. Are you feeling all right? I asked. Me? He asked, quickly stashing the pills away. Oh, I'm fine. At my questioning look, he added, just getting over an ear infection. If certain parties knew, they would have kept me off this assignment. I won't tell anyone, he grinned, especially not Thompson. Right. I guess it's pretty clear there's no love lost between us. Lady, there's no love lost between Thompson and anybody. He put out a hand. Earl Allen, by the way. I've noticed Detective Shit Don't Stink failed to introduce you to the peons. Nice to meet you, Earl. I'm Irene. Oh, we all know you. You're Harriman's wife. Yes. Good man, Frank. Any of these jokers give you problems? Let me know. Thank you. Hey, Earl, one of the cult... Hey, Earl, one of the other cops called out. He was the burliest of the crew and seemed to be the oldest. That's my partner, Duke Fenley, Earl said, moving off. Looked like he needed help with that tent. Duke and Earl, you're kidding. Nah, we're real aristocrats, Earl said over his shoulder. That's why they put us in charge of all the royal assholes. Even with Earl's help, the pair had trouble pitching their large tent, so I decided to help out. As we worked, Earl pointed out Merrick and Manton, two other guards, and an officer named Jin Houghton, who was putting up Thompson's tent. He's young to be a detective, I said. Earl snorted. He's no detective. He's a uniform, just like we are. Thompson's got no regular partner at the moment. Why not, I asked. Off the record? Because nobody can stand working with a son of a bitch. Poor Hutton got drafted to be Thompson's assistant. His flunky, Duke growled. But Hutton's quiet. He doesn't let anything bother him. Well, he'll be okay. We had just brought up the tent. We had just brought the tent up on its poles when Thompson suddenly looked over from a discussion with Newley and shouted, Why the he- What the hell is wrong with you guys? Our hands stilled. Earl looked behind us as if he couldn't believe Thompson was yelling at him. What's the problem, Detective Thompson? Duke said icily. Get that goddamn reporter out of there, Thompson said. I don't want her touching anything that belongs to the LPPD. Gee, Bob, Earl taunted. That's going to be awful tough on Harriman when she gets home. The other cops laughed, even Hunt, which didn't help Thompson regain his temper. That's his problem. Up here... I'm in charge. Got it? Duke and Earl didn't look entirely convinced, but I decided to choose a better fight. I was tempted to loosen my grip on the tent and allow it to collapse, but again I saw Nicholas Parrish watching me. I looked away, seeking an ally. Andy was moving to the Wanigan, a chest full of cooking supplies, toward the cooking area. I was about to ask for his help, but before I could say anything to him, Ben Sheridan strolled over and took hold of the support I was clasping. Clasping. Go on, he said. My small tent was on the edge of the clearing, on the left, on the lee side of some trees. I studied the sky for a moment and decided to put the rain fly on. Then I chose a moment when Nick Parrish wasn't looking at me and backed myself slowly inside the tent's, the tent's opening. I stayed facing the opening as I styled my gear, an awkward process at time, 
but I need to see the darkening sky, feel the cool air. I refused to let myself think about staying inside this confined space. I put on another layer of clothing, then stepped outside. I took out my little white gas stove and began to prime it. Phil Newley saw me and hurried over. Watching his tense, jerky pace, it occurred to me that this trip into the woods might relax him, but I quickly snapped my thoughts back into reality. This wasn't a vacation or some backpacking trip for a little R&R. We were on our way to unbury Nick Parrish's horrible handiwork. And here was his defender, smiling down at me. Charismatic at will. Newly had brown hair, chiseled features, and a pair of intense, dark eyes that were said to be able to unhinge a prosecution witness long before he asked his first question on cross. But decked out in his brand spanking new designer outdoor wear, he looked decidedly doodly and harmless. Irene, he chided, aren't you aren't going to deprive us of your company at dinner, are you? Deprive is hardly the word your opposition would use. I'd been told to bring my own food supplies, although the others would be fed courtesy of the LPPD. Newly had bought steaks for his first night out. Hell, he said, if I could face all the loathing they express for my profession, you can manage too. Come on and join us. Thanks for the invitation, Phil, but if I don't eat this meal I'm planning to make, I have to pack it on my back tomorrow. Besides, I don't think I want to watch Nick Parrish enjoying a steak dinner. I believe Earl will be in serving a bologna sandwich to my client. I smiled. And you don't object? Not much. He hesitated a moment before adding, I don't have to like my clients, Irene. I just have to provide them with the best legal defense work I can offer. But Parrish didn't seem to want me. Didn't seem to much want a defense, did he? I was opposed to this deal. They have a solid case against him. Irene, please. Okay, okay. I'm not hopelessly naive about what can become of a solid case once you've had a crack at it. He laughed. I'll take that as a compliment. Now, say you'll join us. I'm sorry, Phil. The journalist in me says I'd write a better story if I tried to build a sense of camaraderie and all that, but I figure we'll have plenty of time to be in each other's faces over the next two or three days. All right, then. I won't pressure you, but don't stay away all evening, or you'll just look as if you're pouting. All right, I acknowledged, feeling a little disappointed that I have to lace up my gloves and get back in the ring. See you later. Wondering if during the years I was away from it, my as- any aspect of backpacking had improved more than freeze-dried food, I cleaned up and rejoined the group, which had gathered around a small campfire. Um, campfire. There it is. Earl and Duke had taken Parrish into his tent and were on duty there, but one of the other cops, Manton, was friendly to me, as was Flashbird and the photographer. With two exceptions, Bob Thompson and Ben Sheridan, there wasn't much after-dinner hostility at all. Not long after I arrived, Thompson said he was going to bed. I suggest the rest of you do the same. The others, however, ignored him. Manton noticed my uneasy glances toward the tent where Parrish had been taken and said, Don't worry, we aren't going to let him out of our sight. You'll be okay. Thanks, I said, but could not rid myself of the notion that Parrish was lying wide awake, listening to every word, every sound from beyond his tent. A sharp sound made me glance over at Ben Sheridan, who was snapping twigs into smaller and smaller pieces. I wasn't the only one who was having trouble relaxing in the great outdoors. The others soon distracted me, though, as they began to tease me about missing out on the steaks. It took less time to prepare the steaks than it did for old Dave there to make his dogs dinner, Merrick said, and launched into an exaggerated tale of David's elaborate preparation of Bingle's food. Hey, I've got to take good care of Bingle, David said. Este bien, Bingle? Uh, este bien? I have not taken fucking Spanish in since sixth grade. Give me a hot second. Estas bien, Bingle? Bingle, sitting between him and Ben, leaned over to kiss David on the ear. God damn, man said. 
You let that dog kiss you after he's gone around licking dead bodies? Bingle, he's slandering you, David said, in a tone that caused the dog to bark. Bingle only kisses the living. Of course, a guy with breath like yours might confuse him, Manton, so maybe he won't kiss you. What is that stuff you feed him, Flashburton asked. Oh, that's my own super-secret hero-in-training formula. It produces its own acronym, Andy chimed in. Just don't step in it like you stepped on my punchline, kid, David said, but without malice. Bingle lay quietly, ears forward, watching David. David, I noticed, spent a lot of time watching Bingle, too. Andy asked about Bull, and David explained that he had injured one of his paws during the search for Caroline. Bull gets involved in finding a, a scent, and he doesn't exactly watch where he's going. He'll be okay, but he's not ready for a search like this one. I've got a friend who trains bloodhounds, and he's keeping an eye on Bull while I'm here. The shepherd must be the smarter of the two. Bingle is certainly a highly educated dog. He's bilingual, too. Correcto, Bingle? Bingle sat up and gave a single sharp bark. And besides his cadaver training, he's had voice training. Voice training, Manton asked. Cantame, Bingle, David said, and began singing Home on the Range. Bingle chimed in with perfect pitch at the chorus. I'd swear we all heard the dog sing the lyrics. No one could keep a straight face. Well, almost no one. Enough, David, Ben said sharply. Silence. Everyone shifted a little uncomfortably, except for David and Bingle. Both dog and man looked at Ben, Bingle cocking his head to one side, puzzled. Ah, the discouraging word, David said softly, without a trace of anger. He began quietly praising Bingle. Ben stood and walked off. Okay. Um, Tuesday, May 16th, 2.25 a.m. Let me lubricate. Oof, God. Nothing can keep you up all night as effectively as calculating what sort of condition you'll be in the next day if you don't fall asleep soon. I heard soft snoring from most of the other tents, including a double set of saws from the one where Bingle was curled up next to David. I heard the pacing first of Manton and Merrick, and later of Duke and Earl. My claustrophobia kicked in. Not able to stay long in the tent, soon I was sitting in its opening, watching the stars, listening to the insects, wondering what animals were making the other noises I heard. Occasional rustlings and snapping sounds. Our food had been hung high in bear bags, a safe 300 feet from camp, but I wasn't so sure we weren't the object of ursine scrutiny. I thought a lot about Frank, wondered if he was also lying awake, if the pilot's radio message that we'd arrived safely had reached him. I thought of my cousin Travis, who was staying with us. I also thought about my dogs, my cat. <sighs> Excuse me. Um, I tried hard to keep my thoughts away from memories of a particular time I'd spent in the mountains, in a small room in a cabin, the captive of some rather, rather brutal hosts. The nightmares all induced by that had happened... Oh my god. The nightmares induced by all that had happened there were fewer now. But I knew what might trigger them again. Enclosed spaces, stress, new surroundings. Think of something else. I thought of Jillian Sayer. I thought of her mother. I stayed awake. I was wondering if I should give in to the old memories of captivity. Go ahead and think about them. Dwell on them, for God's sake. And if that would relieve the tension. When there was a sudden brightness on my face, a flashlight quickly lowered. In both the path of the beam of light and the sound of footsteps made it clear that someone was making his way towards me. As he drew closer, I saw that it was Ben Sheridan. I moved to my feet as he reached me. 
Why are you awake? He whispered, his breath fogging in the cold air. It's three in the morning. I'm just waiting for my big chance to look through all your gear and touch everything that belongs to the last pair in his PD, I whispered back. He was silent for a moment, then repeated, Why are you awake? Am I disturbing you? No. Well, then why are you awake? Shh. Not so loud. You'll wake the others. I waited. I did sleep, he said. Not for long, I said. You haven't slept at all. Ben, if you've slept, then how could you possibly know that I haven't? He started to move away again. I have problems with enclosed spaces, I said. He halted, then said, claustrophobia? The tent bothers you? Yes. Sleep outside. It's not just that, but I couldn't bring myself to say more. We were interrupted then. Bingle had heard us, and he emerged from David's tent, shaking himself as if he had just stepped out of the bath. Tufts of fur around his ears spiked out from his head, making him look genuinely woozy. The effect was comical. David soon followed him out of the tent, and before I could apologize, David had whispered drowsily, Hi, Ben. Need to borrow Bingle? She does, Ben said. What? I asked, startled. Okay, David said, turning to Bingle. Duerma con ella, he commanded in Spanish, pointing at me. Sleep with her. Bingle happily trotted over and flopped down next to me. Wait a minute. Keep him warm and he'll be okay, David said and went back to his tent. I looked up at Ben with some exasperation. He'll wake you up if you're about to have a nightmare, Ben said and started to walk off. Who said anything about nightmares, I asked. He looked over his shoulder and said, no one, and he kept walking. Bingle was watching me, a look of expectation on his face. I sighed and got into my sleeping bag. Bingle did a brief inspection of the interior of the tent, then lay down next to me. He moved restlessly for a moment or two, until he seemed to find a position that he liked, resting his head on my shoulder. Comfy? I asked. He snorted. I buried a hand in his thick coat and found myself smiling, and a few minutes later, I was asleep. I was awakened briefly when Bingle left me in the morning, but slept in a little longer until the sounds of the camp stirring to life were too much to snooze through. Not long after breakfast, we left base camp. Only the pilot stayed behind with the heaviest gear. Parrish claimed that Julius Sayre was buried at least a day's hike from the airstrip. Backpacks on, we began our journey into the forest. Our progress was slow. Following the lead of a man who was handcuffed and heavily guarded, and perhaps savoring his last days outside of prison, was only part of the reason for our sluggish pace. Ben and David had extra extra equipment to be carried beyond the usual camping gear and were heavily loaded down. The group was large, and within our level of experience varied from novice to expert. I suppose I fell somewhere in the middle. Plenty of time spent hiking and backpacking, but nothing recent. J.C., the ranger, was undoubtedly the most seasoned backpacker, with Andy a close second. Flash, Hooten, David, and Ben were only a little less so, but were all certainly at home in the outdoors. Bob Thompson and Phil Newtley were the apparent novices. Duke was the oldest of the guards, and he had shown me a photo of his new grandson, a story about his high school and told me a story about his high school days that made me guess he was in his early 50s. He was in better shape than Merrick and Manton, who were in their early 30s. Earl, somewhere in between that age, was also in, betwe- in between in fitness. Flash Burton could have run circles around all of them. He was enthusiastically taking shots of wildflowers, double-checking with Andy before scribbling their names in his photographer's notebook. Andy only corrected him once or twice. They soon fell into an easy talk about places they had gone hiking and rock climbing. It was difficult to judge Parrish's experiences on the trail. My suspicions were that, in in this forest at least, he was absolutely at home. Perhaps another forest as well. His boots, for example, were his own, and they were well made and broken in. He did not panic, as Phil Newley did, when a gopher snake hurried across the trail. Bingle was not disturbed by wildlife either. He didn't chase squirrels or other small animals, even when it was clear that he had noticed them. 
For the most part, he stayed near David, his behavior alternately regal and clownish. At times, he walked near Ben. I learned from David that there was a good reason for Bingle's attachment to Ben. For the last few months, Ben had been living at David's house. Although David was reluctant to supply details, apparently Ben had split up with a girlfriend, moved out, and was staying with Ben until the end of the semester. He plans to find a place of his own then, even though I've told him he can stay on as long as he'd like. The dogs and I have enjoyed his company. Forgive me if I have a hard time understanding why, I said. He smiled and said, No, I guess Ben hasn't made the great impression on anyone on this trip. He's not at his best right now. Why? I asked. Oh, all sorts of reasons, he said vaguely, and moved on. We eventually stopped for lunch in a small clearing that didn't allow us to spread out as much as we had before. Nick Parrish used this opportunity to resume staring at me. Bingle, perhaps remembering who had shared a tent with him, took an except took exception to this, standing rigid and growling at him. Tranquilo, mi santilia. Um, David said softly, and the dog subsided. What did you say to him? Parrish asked. David didn't answer. You appear to have a protector, Miss Kelly, Parrish said. For now, anyway. Leave her alone, Parrish, Earl said. But I think Miss Kelly ought to be interviewing me, don't you? I was spared to having to answer. As the last member of the group hobbled into the clearing, Bill Newley moved gingerly toward a large flat rock and sat down on it with a sigh. It was obvious he was about to cripple himself with these new boots. For the last half mile or so, he had been walking as every step were over hot glass. Oof, okay. I was searching through my backpack for some moleskin I had brought when Bear Sheridan, Ben Sheridan walked up to him and said, Take your boots off. Phil newly blushed and said, I beg your pardon? Take your boots off. You've probably got blisters. You should have spoken up on the trail. I'll leave them on, thank you, newly said with as much dignity as he could muster. Don't make a bigger nuisance of yourself by being stubborn. You're endangering the whole trip by damaging your feet. Or perhaps that's what you have in mind? Now see here. Ignore his manners, Phil, I said. He's right about the blisters. Dangerous if they become infected. But he wasn't ready to give in and instead took out a GPS system and began the process of taking a reading. Not hiding his exhaustion, Ben walked off. You ever use one of these GPS receivers? New newly asked me. No, I said. I manage okay with a compass and altimeter and a map. And a little help from JC, I added silently. His familiarity with the area had helped me identify features of terrain more than once. These are pretty amazing little gizmos. He handed it to me and spent a few minutes showing me the basics of how it worked. As the display came up with latitude and longitude readings, he said, of course, it won't work in narrow valleys or dense forests, or other places where I might have a hard time picking up signals from the satellites. I noticed Detective Thompson is using one, too. I handed it back to him. He tucked it away, started to stand up, and swore. Excuse me, he said, sitting down again. Why don't you let me help take a look at those blisters? If they aren't too bad, the moleskin will help. But when he took the boots off, it was clear he had already done some real damage. Over the years, I'd taken some first aid classes, but I was relieved when J.C., much better and trained and experienced, stepped in to do what he could do for Newly. We moved out again, Newly moving slowly, but not giving up. When we stopped about an hour later to get our bearings, he didn't hesitate to take the boots and socks off again. I could see new blisters forming. I was starting, out, I was starting to cut out another set of moleskin pads for him when we heard Parrish call out, I want to talk with my lawyer, privately. What kind of idiots do you take us for, Duke said. You can't just go off somewhere in the woods with your lawyer. Phil newly sighed and with a wince stood on his bare feet. I'll talk to him over there in plain sight of all of you. Surround us if you like, but give us a little room to confer. When Duke looked skeptical, he added, I'm in no shape to go off somewhere into the woods with anyone. 
The Duke looked at Bob Thompson, who nodded. But I want them surrounded, Thompson said, and nobody else near them. Miss Kelly, get the hell away from Mr. Newley. No one had to coax me to move out of range of Parrish, who was smiling at me. Ah, he said, feigning disappointment. I was hoping she'd play with my feet, too. That earned him a sharp push from Earl. Wary, one of the, none of the guards stood too far away from him. Newly, Bob Thompson said. You two will just have to whisper. Parrish looked down at Newley's bare feet. You're moving too slow, counselor, he said, trying not to lower his voice. There's nothing I can do about that now, Newley said. What do you want? To move faster, Parrish said, and brought one of his sturdy boots down on hard on Newley's bare left foot. Newley gave a shout of pain, and Bingle began barking, but the guards had already moved in, shoving Parrish hard to the rocky ground and pinning him there. Hutton, um, gun out, covered them from a short distance away. Earl was on top, holding Parrish's face against the dirt, distorting Parrish's smile of satisfaction. J.C. hurried over to Newley, who looked as if he might faint. The ranger spent a moment in z- examining the foot and said, I think he broke the bones. It's swelling up fast. He opened his first aid kit again and applied an instant cold pack to the foot. Soon, it became clear that Newley would not only be able to walk, not only be unable to walk, he wouldn't be able to put his left boot back on. This led to a heated discussion of whether to end the entire trip then and there. Thompson was the main proponent of calling it quits. The others pointed out the time and expense already incurred. If we were to have him up here without his lawyer, Thompson began, but Parrish interrupted. I fire him then, and I'll take you right back to Las Piernas anyway, Thompson said. You think the DA won't go for the death penalty if he finds out how you screwed up this expensive search? Which may just be a wild goose chase after all. I can promise you, Parrish said with a cold smile, that this is no wild goose chase. There was a long moment of silence before another round of arguments began. Newly agreed to allow Parrish to lead them to the grave in his presence. Out of his presence. Leading you to her saves his life, he gritted out, his his face pale and drawn. Thompson finally relented and decided to let J.C. and Houghton take Newley back to the plane. Houghton, you fly back with him, take him to a hospital, and then get in touch with the D.A. as soon as possible. Let me know exactly what happened here and that Newley agreed to these arrangements. (coughs) J.C. and Houghton divided up the contents of Newley's pack then supported Newly between them. Newly, still white with pain, tried to give me the GPS, saying, Mark the position of anything I need to know about, will you? I'm sorry, I can't, I said, not wanting to be even vaguely involved with Parrish's defense. He managed a small smile and said, You'll be using your compass then? Yes, and although I don't think any sane judge will let you get your hands on my notes, we both know Bob Thompson is using a GPS too. He nodded, but seemed too distracted by the pain in his foot to keep talking. J.C. asked Andy to keep an eye on things while he was gone. Leave trail signs for me, he said, and don't let them destroy too many acres of forest if you can help it. We all watched the trio slowly move away from us. I had a few chances to talk to Andy when he stopped every so often to mark a turning with a strip of cloth on a bush or small rocks in the shape of an arrow. Do you think J.C. will catch up to us again, I asked. Absolutely, Andy said. He's in great shape. He can cover distances in a day that would have most of us looking as wiped out as Phil Newley was at lunch. By late that afternoon, I began to wonder if we would make it to an area where we could even set up camp, let alone to Julia Sayre's grave. We wasted a lot of time, and the air was cooling rapidly. Clouds were gathering overhead, cirrus clouds. We might be in for a storm. Thompson apparently had the same concerns. He stopped the procession. We don't seem to be heading in the direction of the valley you indicated on the map, he complained to Parrish. I was wrong, Parrish said. I know exactly where I'm going now. Just then, the breeze shifted a little. Bingle lifted his nose and made a chuffing sound, then began to whine, looking at David, ears pitched forward. 
Is he alerting? Ben asked softly from behind me. David was focused on the dog. Que te pasa? He asked. What's wrong? The dog started to move ahead, and David hurried to catch up with him. I followed, ignoring Thompson's, Get back here! The dog was moving rapidly now, and soon was out of sight. Bingle! Alto! David called, but Bingo had already stopped. He was ahead of us, barking, then whining in distress. We reached it at the same time, both giving a cry of revulsion at the same moment. Bingo was at the base of a pine tree that at first seemed to be draped in some strange gray moss, but it was not moss. The objects dangling from its branches were animals, coyotes, a dozen or so carcasses hanging upside down in varying states of decay, nailed to the lower branches as if someone had started to decorate a macabre Christmas tree. I put my hand over my mouth, fighting off the urge to be sick. David was quieting Bingle, praising the dog, but I could hear the shakiness in his voice. We heard the sound of the others pushing their way through the woods behind us. Nicholas Parrish looked up at the tree and smiled. I told you we were headed in the right direction. This concludes this first episode of me reading Bones. That was chapters 1 through 5. And I will be recording, I think it's 6 through 11 during the next episode. Signing off. See you later, baby.